Hey guys, you know, it's always fun when we get in the booth and record the show. It's fun to... Fun's a subjective word, but I, I do usually have a good time. Yeah, it's fun to talk about the news and do a show about it, but what's even more fun is having other people listen to the show. And Alex, just, is there a way that some that people could find us more easily? I, I, I would think so. I mean, I think there's like a built-in way for it to happen. Isn't that right? I've got a couple of ways that I'd <laughs> like to implore our listeners to give a shot. One... We'd love for you guys to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps people find us, for sure. Okay. And the other thing is, tell your friends. Um, I'm all the time recommending podcasts to people that I know they might like. And if you're listening to us, we hope you would recommend to other lawyers, law students, anybody you think might want to hear us. And with that, let's go straight into today's show. Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. On today's episode, we're going to talk about family separations along the southern border. There's been a dizzying amount of coverage of this issue and the growing outrage over the Trump administration's policy. We'll be joined today by Nicole Norea, our senior immigration reporter. She'll break down everything that's happened so far, the legal underpinnings of the issue, and she'll tell us what could happen next. And later on, we'll end the show talking about my home state, West Virginia, and a state Supreme Court justice who's gotten into some serious trouble. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, we've got a couple orders of business here before we get Why don't into, you lay them down for the group? into a very packed show. First of all, uh, very sad to report that Nick, the attorney, was voted off The Bachelorette. Oh. He was. He seemed quite upset. Yeah. Um, he appeared to be wearing a, like a, another tracksuit. It was a whole other tracksuit incident. Yeah. And that like went unremarked upon. And I yeah. don't, I mean, he really wasn't, <clears throat> I mean, he wasn't much of a character through the season. You know what? He'll move on to greener pastures. Yeah. Which yeah. is, I, I don't know, litigating more workers' comp uh, cases in Southern Florida. Right. Uh, we wish him well, I guess. Uh, the other thing, uh, more importantly, I you know, we're so committed to this pod life, guys, that we didn't even remark upon uh, our one year anniversary. Wow, That's this happened true. now now this is this is tricky, a little behind the curtain here. We like, we had a bunch of episodes that's that we began doing, I think, in like April of I think they call that a soft launch. A little soft launch. And then we we, we raised the curtain on June yep. 16th. Right. Uh, and we didn't even uh, mention it because uh, we're just not about that stuff. We're not about bragging. Except um, for right now. Uh, we, than... we should be. That's a milestone, guys. I'm proud of us. <laughs> and the other thing, the, re- the, the, the reason I stumbled upon this, actually, is I was um, talking about, I was talking with producer Steve about uh, the fact that Bill, you you and I have both missed like an episode or two here, mm-hmm. and I realized Amber perfect attendance for, for the whole year plus. <laughs> the Iron Woman. Oh my god, it's just the nerdiness of me. I know. It's, yeah, this is my childhood. We, well, we kept being like, well, and when Amber, oh, like Amber's literally always here, so that's good. Um, so congratulations to well, you and we'll to see all how long of us. the streak can last. Yeah. At some point, I will actually take a vacation. You're from more this than job. welcome to, please. <laughs> um, yeah. So congrats all around. Well, as much as we would like to sit here and talk about. The Bachelor and uh, ourselves, ourselves for the whole. <laughs> That's rest our of new podcast. Yeah, right. show. It was a busy week. We had a bunch of Supreme Court rulings, bunch of Supreme... including some today. Yeah. Um. So today, Thursday, uh, as per usual, recording on Thursday. Um. We got a huge ruling, and I thought it was interesting, just because, you know, in in the near future, we'll do an episode about 
the term as a whole. But one thing that we've seen um, on some of the biggest cases, the the court has been reluctant to take bold steps. We're actually going to talk about one of those later on. Punching. Yeah, a lot of that going on. But that was not the case uh, in the ruling that came down today. This was um, a ruling in South Dakota versus Wayfair. Uh, We talked about this on the show. And uh, in this case, the justices uh, basically said that states are allowed to impose taxes on internet retailers, even if they don't have a presence in that state. And in so doing, they overturned more than a quarter century of uh, Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence. Well, we've talked a lot about like the uh, the retail apocalypse and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah. and, and like, so obviously this case is like, like it's a, it, you know, it's just, it's stakesy to begin with because of how big e-commerce has yeah. become. But mm-hmm. walk us through what the details were of like what the court was saying here, like what they you know what they did. Yes, um, and if, to go on to go on an even deeper dive, I definitely recommend people jump a couple episodes back to when we had Maria Coclinaris on from the tax team. We went very deep on the case. But what you need to know is that that's episode fifty. Wow, I actually remember that because I looked it per- up just perfect today. attendance and perfect episode <laughs> recall. Oh, my goodness. Um, anyway, so um, the big picture sort of is is this is the Supreme Court basically trying to catch up with the state of the twenty first century economy. Um, at issue is a case that it decided in 1992. That case is called Quill. And in that, and in that decision, it basically said, um, hey, you state tax authorities, you can only tax businesses that are physically located within your state. Which at the time made a lot of sense. A lot of yes. sense. It wouldn't right. make sense want... for, right. for the state of Colorado to be just randomly taxing <laughs> uh, a company sure. that's headquartered in Georgia or sure. something. Um, but Simpler time, 1992. Things have changed. Uh, you know, in 1992... Al Gore was like thinking about the internet. Maybe yeah. he hadn't quite invented it in right. a way that everybody could use it yet. But yes, things have changed a lot. Um, you can purchase goods from retailers operating anywhere that are kind of everywhere and nowhere. And the you know rise of the internet basically creates a new presence, uh, even if it's not a physical one. Um, so you know, basically, what happened here was the state of South Dakota passed a law. Um, looking to overturn uh, Quill, this 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 uh, this prior decision, uh, knowing full well they would lose, they lost at every step um, of and the. And this was all just a gambit to get to where we are now. Yeah, yeah, they they lost at every step. Um, basically, in open defiance of the Supreme Court precedent, saying, "Hey, look, these brick and mortar shops are very angry that they." Uh, uh, have to charge sales tax, uh, state sales tax, uh, while, you know, their online competitors don't. Right, it put them in a real disadvantage. Yeah, so like I say, South Dakota passed the law, shepherded it all the way up the courts, were knocked down at every every rung of the (laughs) ladder, kind of hoping that when they got to the justices, they would bail them out. Okay, so they got to the big dance, and... um, they got what they wanted out of this gambit, they, right? They came through today. It was a five-four decision, um, and it was with some interesting, uh, interesting to see which justices signed on. We'll talk about that. Um, but uh, it's a very interesting opinion. Everyone should read it if you're interested in this like evolving e-commerce stuff. But basically, it is what amounts to a giant. Not mea culpa, because they didn't do anything wrong, but an acknowledgement that things have changed now. Right. Um, right. And it was said, you know, this this decision, you know, precedents are precedents, but um, it's time for things to change. Um, uh, Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority opinion, and he basically said that now in 2018, this Quill decision, the old decision, uh, is little more than a, a, this is a quote, judicially created tax shelter. So uh, oh, right, because the market. Well, and you got to think about how much money, if you're these states, like how much money has th- that you used to make from brick and mortar stores has mm-hmm. gone online that you weren't you didn't have any access to yeah right. um so yeah i mean there was it, it was just sort of we've talked about this in other contexts before the sort of the prevail
unveiling of like new conventional wisdom. And so that's definitely what's going this on. This all makes a ton of sense to me. Um, but the ruling wasn't like a, a unanimous nine, nothing ruling. Right. What did the dissenters say? Like I said, it was five, four. Um, and the breakdown was very interesting. So as I said, Kennedy penned the majority opinion. And he was joined uh, by Alito. Thomas, Gorsuch, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Huh. That you don't is see such that. a weird lineup. That's I like know. a weird, you show up to the bar and it's like, it's like three <laughs> friends who don't hang out with each other who just like, it's it's a weird, it's a weird pairing. Yeah. And then so lining up on the other side, um, you had the rest of the liberal appointed justices, Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor, and Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so Ginsburg kind of operating as the swing here. That was uh, kind of an interesting quirk, but... Um, she so rarely gets to be that. Yeah. The, 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 the thrust of the dissent was basically like they gave kind of piecemeal consideration to the actual issue of state taxation uh-huh. and, and when and how it is appropriate and all of that and got really nerdy and stuff. But the main thing that they re- expressed reservations about was basically whether it was proper to go ba- basically go back on their own precedent, even faced with like a, a shifting economy, they basically said this is definitely or this is most likely a job for Congress, mm-hmm. which is what some people had said sort of in the context of the case and was definitely possible. Right. They could have said they could have issued a narrower ruling that basically said that the, there's a legislative door that's open for you, Congress. Right. Um, but they didn't do that. Um, you know, like I said, Kennedy and the rest uh, who joined him basically said, you know, sort of. Across the board, like you can definitely start levying these taxes. So what happens now? Does all of our shopping change? Yeah. Does, gonna... does Amazon have to start paying a lot of these? Um, funny you should mention that because mm-hmm. that is sort of the thing that jumps to mind when people think about online retailers. Uh, Amazon, as it happens, is so massive and is such like a behemoth in the online economy that they actually um, already pay quite a bit of state right. tax. Um, is I that was... just because they have like locations and some brick and mortar things around? And... Well, no, it's of course out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I was There's talking... one thing I know about Jeff Bezos. Is that... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was talking with Chris Dezino, who is the who runs the, the the tax authority here, and he was basically explaining. Amazon has some side deals in place with certain states that sort of gives the states a certain slice of the pie. Um, And also, but like you said, they have distribution, which confers a physical presence in so many states that they fall under the umbrella already. But even with that sort of big fish already in this state tax pond, um, there's still a lot at stake. There there were studies that were filed in various briefs that basically said states might be missing out on as much as like $13 billion wow. in annual revenue because yes. this wasn't the I case. I saw Etsy's stock was way down today. Etsy is a big one. eBay, even still people buying off of that. So that's a big thing um, for this space. I mean, you're going to see possibly, you know, w- whether or not these retailers decide to pass on those, you know, state taxes onto their consumers, that kind of remains to be seen. Um, but a lot of states are moving forward with legislation that mirrors the South Dakota bill. Um, so we'll have to sort of deal with that. There will be all kinds of complex stuff with like revenue triggers and stuff. But um, more so like for for court watchers, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated whenever this comes up in other contexts with any kind of technological issue where precedents are precedents. But like, you know, are we sort of back in the Stone Age with these rulings and when they'll decide to let Congress do do what it does or when they decide to do something here, a wholesale change of the law. Um, just an interesting sort of dynamic to keep your uh, keep your eye out for. Well, we're going to stay at the high court for yeah. our second story. Uh, one Another one of the big cases after Wayfair that we were watching was uh, one that dealt with partisan gerrymandering. Yes. Uh, the practice of state lawmakers redrawing the election districts in their state to favor one party or the other. Um, many thought the case uh, of Gil v. Whitford would be one that would finally draw some some sort of limits on the practice, which 
we all know it's named for a guy from like the, the that was like one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. But yes. it's so it's been around forever, but it's gotten really bad in the last call it 20 years yeah so everyone was hoping that this case would come down and maybe we'd have some like goal lines everyone was hoping is such is such tee up language what in the world happened here? well it was not to be yeah much like masterpiece cake shop which we had also hyped up on the podcast and then turned out to be a real <laughs> fart of a ruling yeah uh the court punted on all the really interesting stuff that we wanted them to to rule on. This okay. is like the opposite of what Alex just explained. We had one that Game they changer. took a really strong yeah. lo- strong decision, strong line, and this one. I, I wanted so I want to do like a like a Google search for how many stories had kicked the can and punted. Yeah. Uh, oh sure. For this, for this ruling. Yeah. Because what else could you say really? It really yeah. did that. But it, let's it was back a, up. It, it was a banner week for for cliches in legal writing. <laughs> right. But, right. You know. But let's back up a little for people that maybe weren't following along. What was this case all about? Yeah. So a group of Wisconsin Democrats uh, filed a lawsuit claiming that the gerrymandering that the state's uh, Republican-controlled legislature had done on the election districts had effectively diluted their their votes in the state and that it violated their First Amendment right to association and also their 14th Amendment right to equal protection. They argued this was done by both what's known as packing, which is the concept of you put you shove all the Democrats into one yeah. single right. district. So you draw so that, some crazy little map that just encompasses where all the Democrats live. Exactly. And then every other district votes Republicans. So the Republicans yeah. get way more votes than they should have. Uh, the other way of doing this is called uh, cracking, which is sort of the opposite concept. You split up one party amongst a bunch of districts. So that the other so they party can never win. to like Correct. dilute their voting. Power. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I was using Democrats and Republicans here, but this happens all across the country for both parties. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. And, and as you said, it's the the practice of like drawing district lines in a political way is as old as the Republic itself. So was had, had the high court ever weighed in on an issue like this before? So the idea for a long time has been that we don't know how for courts to to deal with gerrymandering. That, yeah. That it, the, the Supreme Court has ruled that that this just isn't an issue that's easy for a court to deal with right. um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, So then in 2004 um, was the last time they took it on, and Justice Kennedy said that he sort of hinted that that you know that, that this might be something that we need to delve into mm-hmm. um, if there were, quote, a workable standard, but that, um, you know, to, to decide, a workable standard to decide when this practice crossed a line into unconstitutionality. Yeah. So... But th- th- he didn't have that at the time to to work with, so they yeah. sort of again kicked the can down the road. Yeah, right. Well, time marches on like it did in the Wayfair case. We are of down technology the road. And <laughs> the can we are down is the here road. considerably. Yeah, we so, are fielding the punt. <laughs> right. So I would imagine in this case, somebody said they had that standard. They did. Uh, the Wisconsin Democrats said we found like social science has advanced to where to the point where we've sort of found this answer. And the answer is what they called the, quote, efficiency gap. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea would be that you would compare each party's respective uh, wasted votes. That means the votes cast for a losing candidate or a winning candidate in excess of what they needed. So um, uh, across all the legislative districts of the state, and okay. that would sort of generate this efficiency gap. It was repeatable. It was, according to the challengers, it was repeatable. It was something that could be done sort of standardized in a way that it wouldn't just look like okay. judges were picking and choosing who won elections or who or picking and laying their own maps. Elections by judicial fiat. Right, or exactly. Yeah. Okay, so what we have, we have an aggrieved party and we have what we think is a, is a, is a standard by which to, to adjudicate their grievance. So right. what, so what, how do we get this? This dog's breakfast of an opinion. Well, we brought out the punting team. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so the the ruling was written by Chief Justice Roberts and unanimously, by the way, 
uh, ruled that the challengers just hadn't shown the kind of direct injury that gives you standing to file a lawsuit sure, under yeah. our, our constitution. Um, that, that, that old anytime, pesky thing. Well, right. anytime something gets decided just based on standing, it's just such a groan-worthy, oh, like, yeah, oh, we didn't get to any of the meat of this. Right, it's exactly. just standing. Right, the whole point is that they they, they truly made no ruling on, on what was happening here. Um, so Roberts said, basically, that each individual plaintiff would need to show that his or her voting power had been diluted, had been diminished within their district by the current map. So the idea that you could allege this statewide harm that the whole mm-hmm. map had screwed up based on certain people, it didn't work. It didn't it didn't create that kind of individual injury. Yeah. That that so what he said was it was interesting. The quote was that the or that they weren't there to quote vindicate generalized partisan preference, but instead to quote vindicate the individual rights of the people appearing before it. And you know, he pointed to all the reasons why courts can only rule on what's before them. And it, right. it you know it, in the Constitution, there's a reason why it's there, but um, <laughs> but, it's but, an, yeah. but it's an unsatisfying end. To yes, the case. and so just to, um, a note keeping thing: there was a side case dealing with um, uh, a Democratic gerrymandering the, in the, Maryland, the inverse party dynamic. Correct, yeah, and that case was also tossed out, also for procedural grounds, just on the idea that they had waited too long to sue. Wow! So, so if these standing and statutes of limitations, yeah, yeah, yeah. banner day up right. there, a white so. knuckle ride. Yeah, right. <laughs> So things, um, like we said, they got punted and we've joked about them being on these procedural grounds. What happens now? So for now, when it comes to Maryland and Wisconsin, it's the status quo. Their maps stay the same. Um, At least with the Wisconsin case, the main case, it sends it back down for them to prove that they have that they have this kind of standing, that they have the individual injury that, that the court said they needed to. Luckily for them, um, Justice Elena Kagan and the other three liberal justices wrote this concurrence um, that basically laid out a roadmap for doing that, For oh. um, that sort of said like, well, I'll just read from, from Justice Kagan's opinion, which was really great. Quote, more effectively every day, that practice enables politicians to entrench themselves in power against people's will. And only courts can do anything to remedy the problem because gerrymanders benefit those who control the political branches. So yeah. she was basically saying, we need to figure out a way for, for you to do this and went through this sort of the way that, that a, a theoretical, you know, that someone would bring a more successful case. So we see it all the time with cases where there's dissents or concurrences. A lot of times that's the court telling you, here's why we ruled against you, but this is this is a way that you can better do the thing that you were trying to do. Here's the path for you. Right, Right, exactly. And so the other thing is that looking forward, there is a case um, dealing with uh, North Carolina that could get back to the Supreme Court in in short time. So we may see the court ruling on this again, and we will watch what happens in Wisconsin and Maryland going forward. Over the past few weeks, the news has been dominated by stories of immigrant children in detention facilities, separated from their parents. Public outrage over the policy swelled and led to President Trump signing an executive order this week aimed at ending the practice. But that may not actually resolve the situation. With us today is senior immigration reporter Nicole Norea, who's going to talk us through the confusing labyrinth of immigration law and policy that got us here. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, sad one to talk about, and I think a lot of people probably heard about this on the news, but for anybody that's listening that wasn't really following along, can you just sort of set up what's happened over the last few weeks? Sure, absolutely. 
Um, so it's been coming to light um, as a result of some news stories and reporting um, that the Trump administration has been separating now well over 2,000 children from their parents over the past six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was part of the uh, administration's zero tolerance policy, which um, is to prosecute all unauthorized border crossers um, who are entering the U.S. So we have been seeing some photos of kids in a former Walmart that's been repurposed as a housing facility, audio of crying children begging to be with their parents, and it's sparked widespread outrage. So, for Yeah, ha- it's been all that really sad stuff we've all seen on the news. So everyone's been upset, right? Yeah. So it's been foreign heads of state, um, all living former first ladies, hundreds of religious leaders, and members of both parties now. Um, a growing list of GOP members have now condemned the practice of but, separating families. So what we've heard a lot is the, is from the administration that they, that they are bound by law to operate this way. But for a lot of people, that doesn't seem quite right because it seems like this is a, a new thing and the law hasn't changed. So could you walk us through sort of the framework of the law that, that's 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 underlying this? Sure. So I've been speaking to a lot of immigration attorneys about this who are now sort of beginning to sound like broken records and saying that no law or court ruling mandates family separations. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what's been happening is that uh, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in May that a DHS created this new program to refer all of the unauthorized border crossers to DOJ for prosecution. That's what they called zero po- tolerance, right? Yeah, exactly. Um And that is sort of a blanket policy that applies to everyone, um, whether or not they came across the border with children or not. Um, And they've also been detaining asylum seekers as part of that, even though um, the DHS secretary has been saying that if you present yourself at the border, um, you'll be able to petition for asylum. There have been cases where that's actually not possible. But if you come across with your kids with you, I mean, they can prosecute the adult, but you can't prosecute children. So de facto, this is kind of a it, it is a separation policy. Yeah, exactly. Um, the family separation policy has kind of come about naturally from the zero tolerance policy. Right. I mean, because because there be, it's criminal prosecutions, right, for crossing the border. That's like that's right. Yeah, it's, and it's so a, it's a misdemeanor. Offense. Yeah, and so I mean, you get how they say yes, we don't have a specific policy on the books that says separate parents and kids, but like you know, when you start funneling people through the criminal justice system, of course, their children aren't taken with them through that. So, I mean, you can sort of see like how they thread the needle rhetorically by saying we don't have a policy, even if like you say, Nicole, the policy is an outgrowth of the way you choose to enforce the law. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take a step back and talk about, I mean, we've had immigration concerns in this country for years and years. So how did this work under the Obama administration? So um, as you were saying, um, illegal entry is a misdemeanor um, for first-time offenders, and a conviction can be um, grounds for deportation. Mm -hmm. But the Obama administration basically used its prosecutorial discretion Mm -hmm. um, not to prosecute uh, uh, illegal border crossers. So they only prioritized violent criminals, gang members, um, or people who posed national security risks. And I remember writing about this back when I was still an immigration reporter, that the whole point of their choice there is that they made the argument that we've only got so much, so many resources to deal with this, so let's focus on the real criminals and this other stuff we just will not worry as much about. Yeah. Um, There was this initiative called Secure Communities where he was basically um, hoping to only deport the violent criminals that would pose a public safety risk. 
So the other thing that we've heard um, from the DHS secretary and from other officials is that, I mean, to the extent it's like, okay, we don't have this policy, whatever. People are going back and forth about that. The other thing that they always say, and that you've already kind of rebutted, we can talk about it a little bit more, is that the law is forcing their hands, whether they're talking about laws that are on the books or court decisions or whatever. Can you walk us through the sort of legal framework that underpins these decisions? Yeah, so there are three um, statutes and uh, legal precedents at stake here. The Immigration and Nationality Act is one of them, um, and... As we've discussed, that makes border crossings uh, a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they're using to prosecute these immigrants. And that's where they say that they're just following the law, that this is a misdemeanor and they just don't want to ignore the law for anybody. Precisely. Um, they're not using their prosecutorial discretion at right. all to uh, choose not to enforce. And then um, some of the other provisions are a 1997 federal consent decree that requires the government to release all children apprehended crossing the border. Um, It's called the Flores Settlement Agreement, and it came from a class action lawsuit um, over long-term detention of immigrant kids. Yeah, that Flores situation was pretty sad. That came out of a case where there was this long-term detention of kids, and because the result was that you can only detain immigrant children for a very short amount of time, that's now come up again, right? Yeah. So the Trump administration has been citing the Flores Settlement Agreement um, as the reasoning why they can't detain families together. Because mm-hmm. uh, under that agreement, they're not allowed to detain kids for more than 20 days. So when it comes to day 19, they basically say that they have to transfer the children to um, some sort of less uh, restrictive form of detention. Um, So the third component of this is the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which was passed in 2008. And that says that Central American children who are apprehended trying to enter the U.S. have to be released rather than detained. Um, And they're also exempt from prompt return to their home countries. And I mean, the point of that one, I remember when that was making its way through Congress, was that you don't want people to be trafficked, kids to be trafficked in this country, and then deport them right back to where they came from and have the whole cycle start all over again. Definitely. All right. So we have this sort of patchwork of older laws and court decisions that are guiding the administration's thinking on this. We've got sort of a new uh, variable in that equation this week when President Trump signed an executive order ostensibly to restore some order to this whole process. Let's, let's talk about what that says. So I actually don't think that this creates more order out of the situation. He, the executive order has been creating a lot of confusion in okay. the uh, immigration community because the policy aims to end separating the kids from parents, but also doubles down on the zero tolerance policy of continuing to prosecute all unauthorized border crossers. So we've just explained how that's how we got into this, this situation in the first place, that if you're going to prosecute everybody de facto because of these other things, kids can't stay with their parents through that whole process. So how do they aim to make sort of thread that needle with this order? So um, he basically wants to continue detaining high numbers of immigrants, um, but he wants to house them together. So this could be a huge expansion of family detention um, in a way that we haven't seen before. And he, in order to do that, he says that he'll uh, ask Sessions to request to modify the Flores Settlement Agreement, as we talked about. That's that one that says you can only keep the kids for 20 days. So basically the administration is now saying, well, we need to renegotiate that so we can keep the kids 
indefinitely. Right. Maybe? Well, it's 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 an interesting reaction to a situation that was prompted by by outrage from this whole situation. Like, we're not going to jail the kids by themselves anymore. We'll jail everybody together. Right. Right. Uh, so, do you mean to tell me that this administration rolled out a hasty update to a chaotic immigration <laughs> policy? I'm definitely having flashbacks to the travel ban rollout. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for all our listeners, Nicole has covered all of that travel ban that we've talked about many times on the show. So, yeah, this is familiar territory for her. So we record on Thursday, and it's been a day of this new executive order, and I've seen a flood in my inbox of critics of what the president did. So what are those critics saying could be um, a solution they'd be happier with than what Trump rolled out? So they say that Trump could be handling this very differently. Um, For example, they've been calling for alternatives to detention that are less restrictive, um, since detention can be traumatic for children, regardless of whether or not they're with their parents. Mm -hmm. So they've been urging the administration to reintroduce what's called the Family Case Management Program, which it terminated last June. And that program, which boasted sort of higher compliance rates and lower costs than detention centers, um, allowed asylum-seeking pregnant women, nursing mothers, really sympathetic populations um, to get caseworker support in what's essentially a counseling center. Um, so that was really effective, and that's something that people are pushing for. Alternatively, um, there's a, a few lawsuits right now that are challenging the policy of separate, uh, family separation, um, and one of the major ones is filed by the ACLU, and that's pending in California federal court. Um, And that's a nationwide class action. So that's the only one of its kind. They're currently seeking a nationwide preliminary injunction that would bar the government from separating parents who have not been prosecuted for illegal entry. And that's moving really quickly right now. Um, I was just talking to the attorneys uh, in that case, and they say that they're having a status conference tomorrow um, and are going to be pushing the judge to issue an injunction really soon. Nicole, I feel like it's um, a new day and a new discrete issue, but it's the same trajectory we've seen before where lawsuits come after these policies that are very um, creating a lot of uproar. And we'll wait to see if, if there's a court solution here. Yeah, I mean, it's all very up in the air right now. And I think every immigration attorney is wondering what's going to happen just as much as we are. Thanks for explaining it all. Thanks. Guys, we like to end the show with something offbeat, and I almost don't want to bring this up, but I have one about my home state, West Virginia. Yeah, your neck of the woods here. Let's hear it. Yeah, so nothing good's going on back home. Um, the West Virginia <laughs> Supreme Court, one of the justices, his name is Alan Lowry, was indicted on charges of fraud, lying to the FBI, tampering with a witness to um, get rid of these charges against him or trying to get rid of them um, for alleged misuse of state funds and state property. It's a I lot mean, of a lot of things. I mean that's I mean that sounds Was he a sitting? Like was he he was sitting. current? Yeah. He was he was Ooh. current. On the Supreme on the state Supreme Court. State that is. Supreme we did, Court. Yeah, that's tough. You we, hate to see it. Yeah, we did we especially if you're a resident of West Virginia. Right. Yeah. But really anywhere. These it, are your tax dollars. It is tough because this all um, this indictment happened Wednesday. That was June twentieth. And uh-huh. just fun fact that's called West Virginia Day. It's a state holiday. Oh. So it's super sad to have a big state scandal Every year on your we state bring holiday. Up one of our most major public figures on fraud <laughs> charges. Yeah, I was like, yeah. like a Parks so, and Rec thing or something. So for the it's people, like getting a wedgie on your birthday. So for the people unfamiliar with the Mountain State, the state holiday is about when the state 
um, became a member of the union. So, yeah, Yeah. it's it's actually a thing for us. But, yeah, the guy was a sitting Supreme Court justice. He had been on the court since January 2013, and his alleged improprieties began only months later, about six months after he was seated. So there's this 22-count indictment. And I got to say, a lot of these things here feel petty in a way that you're like, why would a learned person make right. these choices? So here's some what, of them. What are some of the choices? Yeah. Um, what do you do? So if you're <laughs> what that judge do? If you're a state Supreme Court justice in West Virginia, you apparently get the use of a state vehicle for official business. A little perk. He, okay. He used it for personal trips, and um, he even used it to go to signing events for a book he wrote. The book was about government corruption oh in West Virginia. Oh, my God. That's a little on the nose, don't you think, Isn't Amber? It? Yeah, I know. I've got some <laughs> things to tell you about government corruption, <laughs> none of which I've ever done. Corrupt. This is like didn't this is like like David Carr wrote that wrote that me, wrote that like fictionalized memoir about his own drug addiction, but yeah. this guy like did it in reverse. He, right. like, he he wrote the corruption book first, then was busted on there corruption. There you go. It's nice. And he also did some sort of petty stuff where he like arranged to be double reimbursed for gas and mileage and stuff like that, where he'd already put it on like a, a state card. So right. those things like that. Um, but then he did another one that's just sort of weird. Well, you get a taste and then, uh, you know, you got to dive in a little harder. You're in, <laughs> so, that, you're in that grift game. Right. So he allegedly arranged to have a historic desk transferred <laughs> from his is- chambers to his house. And just to tell you about this desk, because I wait, kinda, oh, wait from his he, chambers to his house. Now, when you he, say he transfer, was he it? stealing artifacts, <laughs> or was he was he like like he well, was going to give it back so at the I end of his term? So I wanted to know. I mean, for me, it was like, well, what kind of historic desk do they have? And that I just belongs didn't in a museum. <laughs> oh my god! Actually, <laughs> I was like, wait, what are you in doing? In this oh, case, okay, it does because the desk was. They're called Cass Gilbert desks. Uh-huh. If that name for history buffs sounds at all familiar. He was a prominent architect. He designed the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. He designed a bunch of state capitals, including the one in West Virginia, which, by the way, uh, is very beautiful. Um, and this desk, I guess. And, yeah, he de- he designed the West Virginia Supreme Court building. So when he designed it, he hand-selected all the desks. So because this guy's famous and designed some He's got his imprimatur things, of this yeah, historic so, architect guy. So they still use these Cass Gilbert desks. So the guy allegedly... Took it to All his right, house. so this is some light, you know, misusing the car, maybe, maybe stealing some artifacts. We, <laughs> right, you know, we 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 all want desks. It's... I mean, that stuff slap on the wrist stuff. What are we? It sounded you know, like some pretty, some pretty serious. Uh... It's usually the cover up, not the yeah, actual well. act. So, media reports started surfacing about corruption on the court, uh-huh. and so this justice for arra- the state, baby, for the state. He swiftly arranged to have the desk and a leather couch he'd apparently also transferred <laughs> sent back to his chambers. So oh. that's not suspicious at all. Guys. Sure, no, yeah. Then he allegedly lied to an FBI agent that was investigating all this corruption uh-huh. and saying, just saying he never did any of this stuff. And then he also tried to coach an employee, hoping <laughs> that that person would mislead a grand jury investigation. Oh, my God. So it certainly gets more serious. It sounds kind of funny when you're like, oh, some mileage at a desk, but it gets a lot more serious well, when you're talking about the steps. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you know? I don't know if it's there in the stuff you're reading. At night, when he brushes his teeth, does he, does he try to actually physically put the toothpaste back in the tube? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Um, yeah, and so I'm a little sad to report on this as a as a native West Virginian. Yeah. But it actually might all get much worse. Um, <laughs> Great. So the U.S. attorney, a guy named Michael Stewart put out a press release about this, of course. And one of the things he said was, quote, for the past several weeks, public officials across West Virginia have been quick to condemn Justice Lowry. 
perhaps with the hope that this crisis in public confidence with the Supreme Court could be expediently resolved all by lodging culpability on just one person. That may or may not, however, be the case. Our work continues on many fronts, including additional areas of corruption. That's, uh, you know, you know, some people read that and were like, oh, heavens. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it certainly appears that this justice has been served. <laughs> he sure has. And that's a good place for us to wrap up today, I think. Yeah. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank other people that participated in today's show. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests, Nicole Norea. Contributing reporters, Emma Cueto, Jimmy Hoover, and Maria Coclineris. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. If you want to learn more about anything we talked about in today's show, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. You're going to help lots of other people find our show. Thanks, and join us again next week.